Hello, and welcome to the Wicked Spooky Podcast. I'm your host, Doug Cross, a.k.a. Dead Doug. The song you're about to hear is by my good friend, Dr. Gasp, who goes by the name of Dan Blakesley when not recording monstrous melodies. In addition to music, Dan is also a wonderful artist and provided us with our scary skull logo. Please check out all of his work on danblakesley.com. I will also share the link on our website, wickedspooky.com. Up next is my interview with Kat Scully. I interviewed Kat about six weeks ago for her then-upcoming book, Jennifer Strange. Jennifer Strange is now out in all bookstores and online. 
do yourself a favor and pick this book up as soon as you can. And if you can, please support your local bookstore in this time of COVID by ordering from them. Kat and I had a wonderful conversation that I hope you will all enjoy. And after that, please stay tuned for my terrible tale. This month's tale is a three-part story, and it will show you what a cold murder case, a summer blockbuster, and a local horror author all have in common. I would like to welcome to the Wicked Spooky Podcast, Kat Scully. So Kat, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself? Sure, absolutely. So I am the writer and illustrator of Jennifer Strange. Um, It's my first book. Uh, It's being published in July um, the 21st by Haverhill House Publishing. And it's not my first time I've been published. I have been an illustrator of world maps for Random House, Simon Schuster, Sourcebooks. Um, I've written scripts for Cartoon Network. I've been a storyboard artist. I now work in video games for the Deep End Games, which is a team comprised of a lot of veterans from Bioshock, Bioshock Infinite, Mist, SWAT 4, and Perception. Um, And I do a lot of freelance marketing of authors. So I have worked on a lot of pre-order campaigns for young adult bestsellers, for uh, adult bestsellers. I've done everything from their social media to their websites. Um, I do a lot of different things. I wear a lot of hats. (laughs) And when I'm not doing all that, I'm a drummer. Oh, really? (laughs) Yes. (laughs) Do you have any current bands you're playing with or? No, my husband plays maybe three or four different instruments. So I play with him. I'm completely self-taught. I learn um, just by listening to a song. I can pick up the drums. And I started learning right before I became pregnant with my daughter. And I took lessons all the way up till I was six months pregnant with her. And she still loves to fall asleep to Metallica. <laughs> and I've been learning Ghost lately because Ghost is her favorite band. So oh, wow. I've been trying to learn that, but luckily the drums aren't too difficult. Thank you for sending me the PDF of your book. I actually cracked it open the other night and just in one sitting, I think I read 70 pages which oh my goodness wow yeah <laughs> i mean honestly you you know with kids it's it's hard to find the time to read and i have not sat down and read that much i think since baby violet was born like almost yeah a year and like 3 months ago so that says something it drew me in right it away it really does that yeah. just yeah that means so much to me because i'm also a parent and i understand <laughs> i've been trying to read this whole time we've been in quarantine and oh. they will not let me yeah <laughs> so the fact you read 70 pages in one go is like the highest compliment oh thank it, no th- thank you honestly I, I really enjoyed it i was sitting on the couch with my wife and she's like i'm just gonna put something on and i'm like yeah if you don't mind i'm gonna read a book and the next thing i know it's like an hour later and she's like i'm gonna go to bed <laughs> Yes. And um, for our listeners who don't know about my book, I can tell you kind of my short pitch. So essentially, my book, Jennifer Strange, is a a first in a trilogy. I'm so excited. We're going to have more. Um, And it's about a girl who has essentially a supervillain power. She can bring ghosts and demons back to life. So if she touches a ghost walking by, she can give it a body. 
But the problem is she can also give demons a body. And demons can't cross over like ghosts. They're not floating around. They have to have a host to possess. And so if she touches a host with a demon inside possessing them, it rips right out of the host. So the story itself is kind of this bubblegum pop, fast-paced, fun, but also gory book. <laughs> and it's, I wanted to show what would it have been like if we saw Buffy when she first found out, I'm a cheerleader and suddenly I'm the vampire slayer and I have no idea what I'm doing. I'm accidentally killing people right and left. I'm trying to slay these vampires. And that's the heart of Jennifer Strange. So it's a younger YA, she's in ninth grade, and she's just gotten out of uh, middle school, and she's trying to navigate what high school even is when a ghost attacks her volleyball class. And she doesn't know why it's there, what's happening, and her dad saves her and says, look, you've woken up, I'm taking you to stay with your sister that you don't even speak to anymore, and you're gonna stay with her for a few days while I go get this more powerful item to protect you. And so she's, like driven from Atlanta, her home, down to Savannah, and dropped in her sister's dorm room, basically, and said, here, stay put, be safe, don't tell your older sister, bye. Here's my <laughs> journal, figure it out, I'll be right back. And he doesn't come back, and doesn't come back. And so Liz, her older sister, knows nothing about this, she's just trying to get through art school, and they have to figure out about their family past they never knew, about their powers, about why these things are chasing them, and it's constant. I think the whole plot takes place over three days. I know you had said it was gory, and I'm like, okay, it's YA, it'll be gory, but that, and no spoilers again, but the first action scene that you get to, and I was like, oh, oh, okay, it, it <laughs> went there. All right, oh, and it's going there? Cool, cool. <laughs> <laughs> That's what surprises people the most, especially if they know me and they've known me in publishing for a long time because I'm the sunshine bunny. I'm an extrovert. I talk to everybody and I'm super happy. And then when they read my book, they're like, oh my God, it got to the gore like so fast. And I'm like, yeah, yeah, I didn't shy away from anything. I, I really, so I write every book kind of for someone, like mm -hmm. I see a piece of media, I really, that resonates with me and I go, I wanna write something back. Like if you put out a source of media that's a letter to the universe, I'm gonna write you back with something like that inspires me, that I felt spoke to me and do it my own way. And this one was my letter to Evil Dead. And I wished I wanted a female like mm -hmm. Ash. And I saw the remake, and I love that. I saw Kelly and Astro's Evil Dead, and I was like, I want that. I want Supernatural, but with two sisters. I want <laughs> Buffy, but what if we went a little farther, like with the amount of fighting and gore? That would be my jam, so I wrote that. Speaking of Supernatural, of course, the final season just hit Netflix, and that's how I watch it, so that's on my mind too. And then reading this, I'm like, it's all coming together. And it's, it's that perfect melting pot of everything you said. And I mean, I'm enjoying it now. I'm 47 and I'm, I'm enjoying the heck out of it. But if I were of that age, like that would have been the book I would have 
flown to. <laughs> oh, yeah, absolutely. And it's so funny when I, I originally wrote this idea, it was back in 2009, and I had never seen Buffy mm. or Supernatural, even though they were both out, obviously, at the time. Um, but it, it's funny, I, I don't know where the idea exactly came from. Like, I was in a TV pilot writing class, and mm. I had pitched a show that was a skeptic and a believer solve supernatural mysteries. And my teacher was like, go back and watch the X-Files. And I was like, oh, I hadn't seen that either. <laughs> so <laughs> I went and I just read Watchmen and I was like, what do I want to read? And I realized I still want to write a skeptic and a believer, but I wanted to do something different. So the original premise was actually Jennifer and her aunt Liz. Mm. And they're trying to figure it out. It's the same thing where the dad's gone, the mom um, has passed away, and they have to figure out working things out together. But I wanted it to be a little more intimate, so I switched it to sisters. Mm. I do love that sister relationship, too. I have a sister, and then my father remarried, and I have three half-brothers. But just right off the bat, the the relationship it feels real and a lot of times you don't always get that it feels a bit more forced but this was natural you get the love you get the infighting you get all of it and it came through right away so that was awesome to see too thank you so much i've gotten a lot of early feedback that like people love like even if they aren't super into the gore or the premise they're really into the sisters and i'm the oldest of three. Mm. I have a younger brother and a younger sister, and they are seven and eight years younger. And so I want to model Liz after my sister because she's very practical. She's very like no nonsense. Mm. And I'm a lot more like Jennifer. And so I thought it'd be funny to kind of reverse the <sighs> ages. So it made it easier to write the older sister's perspective because I know that perspective but it also helped writing Jennifer. There were times I felt so close to Jennifer, I had to put in little pieces to distance myself. So Jennifer loves Hawaiian pizza, because I hate it. Like I hate Hawaiian pizza, like I don't like pineapple and um, ham on it. I, I don't, <laughs> I can't stand it. So I was like, that one little thing made me go, okay, she's not me. Yeah. <laughs> and it made it easier to revise. <laughs> I, I'm a big fan of pineapple pizza, so don't hold it against me. But I, oh, I, I won't. Yeah. <laughs> I, I'm honestly the outlier. Most people like it. I, yeah. I, I'm like, oh, I can't do it. I like ham. <laughs> I like pineapple, but not on pizza. <laughs> yeah, I understand. <laughs> so circling back, though, you did work and you continue to work in video games. But of course, Bioshock is probably my favorite series of, I don't know, the past couple of decades. Oh my gosh. I was completely sideswiped by that opportunity and how amazing it's been because mm. I fell into the job, essentially. I mean, once I fell into it, I had to pitch and I had to work and kind of like prove I could do it, uh, which was very good. I learned so much from that process. But I was on a panel at Boscone with my now coworker Reiko Murakami. And Reiko is like an award-winning artist who's done um, the covers for some of Joe Hill's comic books. Um, oh, yes. Yep, the yep. basket with the heads. I can't remember the title. I can't either, but yeah, I like, know exactly what you're talking about. <laughs> yeah, you know exactly what I mean. That's yep. Reiko. 
and she and I were on this panel together talking about, um, I was moderating it, we're talking about illustrating, and there was this girl who came up to me after, um, Amanda Gardner, and she and I had Mentored in Pitch Wars, which is a contest that helps writers who are having a hard time breaking in. We mentor them for three months, and then we put them into a pitch contest to get an agent. And it grew huge over the years. It, it, it led to a Children of Blood and Bone being sold, which is now this massive, you know, like franchise is going to be a movie and everything. And it was, it's been so good for so many people. Yeah. Um, but I knew her vaguely from that. And we got talking after the panel. We were so excited to finally like meet face to face. And she said, I work in video games. And I said, that sounds like the coolest job ever. <laughs> like, I would love to do that. And she's like, really? Would you actually, do you want to maybe apply? And I said, yes. And she said, what games do you like? And I said, Bioshock. Like I played Bioshock every Christmas. I beat mm -hmm. all three every holiday season. Those like two weeks where you get off. That's what I do. I beat, the, <laughs> I beat all three. Like I'm crazy about nice. those games. I have stuff all over my house. I have posters. <laughs> I have like tons of things. Um, my children know what it is like they know who the big daddy is. Yeah, it's the whole thing and she said, huh? <laughs> Interesting and then I went home and I looked up her company and I had a mild freak out because her husband was This he built several of the levels of Bioshock like the medical pavilion mm -hmm. and he was the model for Jack oh. <laughs> So He looks like Jack Wow and wow. He was one of the directors on Bioshock Infinite, and it was mm -hmm. just like, oh my gosh, so I got to go over to their house and like pitch them some video game ideas, and um, they couldn't figure out where to put me because I have so many different skills, and I didn't know where to put me because I didn't know, mm -hmm. like I can write, I can storyboard, I can illustrate, um, and I ended up in user interface design mm -hmm. because I have so much graphic design background. So that's like your health bar, magic bar, um, your inventory, your world maps. I had done so many world maps for wow. books. It was like a natural fit. Um, and now I'm working on backgrounds and writing and it's just been wild because like my technical director was the technical director of Bioshock. The wow. art director is Nate Wells mm -hmm. who designed the big daddy. And I worked with him and I was like trying to stay calm. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it was hard, but I did it. Um, yeah, so it's been a dream come true. I'm so excited. Um, the like when uh, Irrational split and a bunch of different companies formed, the Deep End Games form, and they came out mm -hmm. with a game called Perception, which is a blind protagonist in a haunted house, and mm -hmm. it's one of my favorite games now. And I really think everyone should check it out um, and go. It's on like PlayStation and PC and it's just so much fun and definitely play that while you're waiting because we're about to announce what we're working on sometime soon. I can't oh, wow. say what it is like that I've been doing, but mm -hmm. uh, very secret secret, but soon we'll be able to talk about it. Oh, incredible. I'll, I'll have to check that out. Yeah. Again, with a kid, not much time to video game, but when I can, I, I try to dive in. Oh, absolutely. Like, I feel like if you were comparing perception to a novel, it would be like a novella mm. length. Mm -hmm. So it's not going to be a huge time suck. Like you could definitely play it. Um, it's chapters like a story. Cool. So yeah, it, it's totally playable. And then you can go back and it scared me to death. <laughs> it scared me so bad. 
playing that game. I had the hardest time beating it because I was just so scared. It was all so dark. Yeah. <laughs> like, and there's this presence coming, and I was freaked out. It was so good. Oh, wow. I'll definitely check that out. So what brought you to Salem? What is it about Salem that you find intriguing? Oh, my gosh. It feels like coming home a bit because I'm originally from Atlanta, mm -hmm. uh, which is part of the reason I set Jennifer Strange in the South. All of my books so far are set in the South, except for one. Uh, and I felt like when I was down there, I didn't know as many horror people. And I had some friends uh, James A. Moore, Charles Rutledge, and Christopher Golden, and they were all like, you should go to Nikon. I was like, what is a Nikon? What, what is that? <laughs> and I didn't know it was the New England Horror Writers Convention that uh, was in Rhode Island every year. It's now moving to Salem. It was supposed mm -hmm. to be this year, but pushed to next year. And I could not believe what it was like to be around other people like me that were like the nicest people on earth, but also into gory things. Like it was the best. There is nothing that could compare. And I just felt like I found my people. This is wonderful. And I didn't know what Salem was like until I moved here. Mm. And I moved up to Haverhill, which is the same city where Nosferatu takes place. Right. <laughs> and so it's funny watching that show like, oh yeah, yeah. So. I decided, okay, let's take the kids down to Salem. Uh, let's see what it is. I can't wait. And we went down. I was like, oh my God, it's like all spooky. It's everything that I am, but in shop form. And it's all together. <laughs> and there's food that I love and chocolate and incense and herbs. I was like crazy about it. And then the fact that everyone there is, is into monsters and uh, classic horror and new horror and all the different kinds like I was I had never seen that before in my life I didn't know that such a utopia could exist mm -hmm. your brain just couldn't process it <laughs> my only conception was like hocus pocus which right. I watched obsessively as a kid and I was like surely a place like that does not actually exist <laughs> and I went there I was like it does and it's so much better it's even better as an adult there are vampires here what <laughs> <laughs> it was wonderful good yeah my wife is originally from canada and we met when we we're both living in new york and both kind of got burned out from new york after a while you're either there for life or you find your time is done and we moved back to Massachusetts. I'm originally from Newburyport, Massachusetts. I don't know if you know where that is. Yes, it's... I'm learning where everything is, and I know Newburyport. <laughs> I'm now, like figuring out. <laughs> yeah, oh, it, it takes a while, yeah. But uh, yeah, I grew up in Newburyport, and we moved closer to here, but we were down in the Somerville area, and we liked it, but we'd come up here every once in a while, and. Salem changed a lot from what it used to be. Uh, it used to be still pretty witchy, and it had the shops, but it's exploded in the time that I was away. And we're like, okay, it's we're going here. <laughs> oh my gosh, yeah. Like It seems that there's a lot of new business there, and I've mm -hmm. been so worried about them during the virus. Yeah. That whenever I've had any extra money to spare, I've just been like, I'm going to get something from Emporium 32 or mm -hmm. Modern Millie or like my favorites because I don't want to see them shudder. 
because oh, I love that little town so much. I just love no. Salem. <laughs> <Good>. <laughs> yeah, it's a lot of fun. And as I was saying, when I moved here, I kind of fell into working for Salem Horror Fest. Kind of like how you fell into video games. I had a friend who was friends with the founder of Salem Horror Fest, Kay Lynch. And my friend Greg was helping out happened to notice I had bought a ticket for one of the events and reached out to me through email like, hey, you're into all this stuff. Do you want to help out? So I kind of volunteered the first year just taking tickets. And next thing I knew, Kay and the rest of the group were like, hey, join us next year and help us plan some events. And it's really exploded from there. But I definitely moved here for that sense of community you're talking about. Um, Even in New York, you know, working in film, I never quite felt at home with the people I was hanging out with. They weren't quite this. (laughs) And then you get to Salem and everybody's exactly kind of what you're looking for so it's been a lot of fun me too it's nice to finally feel like i found my people yeah these are my people (laughs) yes and and i mean we obviously eat out a lot and shop a lot here too actually i'll give a shout out to die with your boots on because i think they get a good portion of our paycheck almost every time and my wardrobe is now full of their stuff Oh my gosh, same. I love Amber. And she's been so supportive. She ran a like of women in this industry Mm -hmm. from artists to writers to crafts, um, women like everybody. I am so sad that Daughters in the Darkness uh, got canceled, but I'm so happy they moved online because they introduced me to my new favorite thing ever, which is Black Widow Yoga in Salem. Oh, yes. The metal yoga. And Mm -hmm. I've been doing it three or four days a week. I love their classes to death. I've been telling everyone, (laughs) go to their classes. I love them so much. They're amazing. So if it hadn't have gone online, I don't know if I would have, because I would have been running to a panel because I was on panels Mm -hmm. that weekend. And I don't think I would have been able to go to the yoga event. But because we were home, I was. And now I have this new love and it's really gotten me through being stuck at home. Oh, that's I love awesome. those ladies so much. <laughs> oh, yeah, I know. Amber was one of the first people I met in Salem outside of the Horror Fest group. And I was already buying, you know, the books that they publish. Um, and I hadn't even re- put two and two together for a little while. And then I'm like, oh, I get it now. Okay. And she has worked with Salem Horror Fest for a few things. Actually, I'm hoping to get her on the podcast. I know she's dealing with a lot of stuff with the shop right now, but hopefully I'll be able to grab her for that sometime down the road because she would be a great guest too. Oh, she would be wonderful. She's so insightful and wise and knowledgeable. Like I've learned so much about marketing from her. Oh, great. Uh, because she has such a great social media presence and mm-hmm. like and is willing to share that knowledge with everybody to just like help uplift people right. because this isn't always common knowledge like how to best put yourself out there and mm-hmm. how to use your tools and what do you like and what do you not like and how do you spend your time um, promoting and I learned a ton from her um, and I continue to 
Yeah. And I really am excited for her shop to reopen, even though it's under construction. And mm-hmm. She's been going through so much with that. I know. <laughs> yeah. There's a background there for those who don't live in Salem, but uh, Die With Your Boots On will survive and they will open again. And I highly suggest shopping there if you like all sorts of, you know, gothy, spooky, or even heavy metal clothing. The shop owners are amazing, Amber and Nick. Uh, so everybody who comes to Salem, it's probably the first place I tell them to go when they're looking for something out of Salem. Emporium 32 being probably the second one. I, I love those guys too. I would also like to get them on the podcast at some point. I think I'm going to hit everybody I know in Salem and just be like, you guys have nothing but time. I have nothing but time. <laughs> Let's just talk for a while. It's fun. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> what else are we going to do? Play video right. games? I've played most of my video games by now. Have you seen any cool movies lately? I'm trying to think of the last movie. I, I did see, we've been trying to with uh, Salem Horror Fest, just as, you know, us, like just the people involved, we try to get together when we can on Zoom. And Kay will usually like uh, get us all together for a movie night. And I haven't been doing that lately. But I did see the new Invisible Man with Elizabeth Moss, and I was not expecting to enjoy it as much as I did. That really kind of uh, blew me away. Oh, my gosh. It was incredible. I loved it. That was one of the last ones I saw in theaters. I think the very last one I saw was The Lodge, Mm. which I believe just finally got released on streaming. I think so. Mm-hmm. And or maybe it's on Hulu. I think there was a platform where you could just watch it if you have a subscription. But that one messed with me pretty bad. Just like I saw the color out of space, I saw Fancy Island, oh. uh, I saw the Lodge, and I I've been to a lot of horror movies. I kind of saw the writing on the wall that we were all going to be stuck at home, and I went to as many as possible because nice. my favorite thing is going to the movies with friends. Yeah, and. I went to as many horror as I as I could, and I was so bummed that oh, Antlers got pushed. Oh I yeah, was so excited. Oh. I was really looking forward to it, and I heard the Wretched is mm-hmm. really worth checking out. It's doing really well in drive-in movies. Yeah, I, that's actually one thing I'm kind of happy about with all of this. It seems the drive-in is making a comeback, and. Moving back here, I looked into it, and there just weren't that many drive-ins left around here. But I think through this, we might see a few more pop up. I hope so, because they were not a thing when I was growing up at all. I just got to see what they were in movies. Mm. And I have always wanted to go to one, and now I see they're kind of popping (laughs) up in places. And I'm like, we're going to figure out a way to go. Because I wanted to go see The Wretched, but I want to take my... Uh, five and eight year old to that. So yep. <laughs> I'll probably go take them to like a rerun or something. Right. Although my son, his favorite movie is Poltergeist. Oh, classic. <laughs> <laughs> it, it is. Uh, he has such a spooky kid. His favorite uh-huh. stuffed animal is a spider. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> and my daughter likes to dress up as a vampire and walk around. So, right. But my husband and I met because of Evil Dead. So. It was just kind of bound to happen. At at like, the movie, or how, how did that no. happen? So he stole me away. <gasps> Ooh. Yeah, I was in a Barnes & Noble. Mm. I was training to be an After Effects apprentice. And um, 
basically do animation for Cartoon Network was like what I wanted to do with my life. And mm -hmm. I was there studying and my boyfriend at the time was talking with a guy about comic books and they were having an argument about Jeff Johns run a Green Lantern. Mm -hmm. and they were arguing, arguing, and I was starting to feel like, man, this guy, he's like not including me in the conversation because he thinks I don't know anything about comics. Ugh. And so I jumped into the conversation and the guy was my husband. He turned, he, he's who I'm married to now. But <laughs> when I opened my mouth and started arguing about Jeff Johns, he was like, oh no. <laughs> and then uh, we started getting into book recommendations. And he's like, well, what do you like? And I said, well, movie wise, I love Evil Dead. I love Dog Soldiers. I love um, Ginger Snaps. Mm -hmm. I love, and I just rambled on. And he went, oh no. <laughs> It was like, you know, Wayne's World, I have to have her. <laughs> and so it got really awkward. He was like, are you dating this guy that you're with? Or like, what is going on here? And my boyfriend at the time and I were kind of drifting apart for school reasons, for family reasons. And mm. he swooped in and was like, yep, this is what's <laughs> happening. And then our first date, he... Uh, was like, let's watch Army of Darkness together. And I was like, yes. <laughs> so our relationship is just kind of based around <laughs> loving horror movies oh, and loving great. bad B movies. <laughs> and so our children were just, you know, going to end up that way from the beginning. So uh, circling back again, Nikon, actually, our mutual friend, Jason, from the Boston Horror Society, who I love that guy. <laughs> oh, my gosh, me too. Yeah, he introduced me to Nikon. And of course, I was just about to buy my ticket when due to the coronavirus, they had to cancel this year at uh, Salem State. And the person I was really looking forward to was uh, Joe R. Lansdale was coming. And I've been reading him since, gosh, I would say high school. I think I started with his stuff. And so I'm hoping he comes back for next year or sometime soon. But I didn't grow up with him like everybody else did. So I've heard you know, Bracken McLeod, Chris Golden, I've heard everybody be like, oh my gosh, Joe Lansdale, we all strive to be as good a writer as him. And I was like, I haven't read anything by him and he's so prolific. I have no idea where to start. Mm. But the first thing I ever saw of his or read of his technically was, I just have been watching Creepshow oh, nice. on Shudder. Mm -hmm. And I had never really seen Creepshow before either. Because I'm younger, like I was born in the late 80s, I'm mm. in my early 30s, so there's this whole wave of stuff I've missed, and I'm going back and watching all of it, because that is the stuff I like. I like the stuff that came out in the 70s and 80s, that's yeah. my favorite. So I'm like watching Creepshow, and I saw that one of the episodes was written by Joe and Casey Lansdale. Mm -hmm. It's like, oh my god, I see that, because everyone talks about them all the time. And that was such a good episode, like if you haven't checked out the new season, the writing quality is wonderful. My favorite one was Josh Mallerman's. Oh, oh my God. I haven't seen that me one so yet. Bad. Oh, no. <laughs> that's me so bad. I tweeted him and I was like, Josh, Josh, what, what did you do to me? He and I are friendly. Like, I met him years ago. Mm. Um, I used to be the young adult editor for the Horror Writers Association. And I ran a blog called Scary Out There with Jonathan mm. Mayberry, where he interviewed people like, what is horror? Because 
a lot of people are very hesitant to use the H word, especially yeah. in young adult, because it seemed like it's a bad thing. Like they'd rather say dark fantasy or, but there are so many books that have that element of horror in them. We were trying to say, no, really, you're part of the group. You are like, you got a scary monster. Yes, you're part of the group. It's not a bad word. And so Jonathan Mabry was like putting the good word out there of like trying to promote positivity of yes, horror is a good word. And during that time, I ran the track for the Horror Writers Association, uh, like when it used to be with World Horror Con and the Bram Stokers were together. Mm -hmm. um, and I met a lot of people in the industry that way. So that's actually how I broke into horror. It was well before I got published. And that's why I know so many people now. Because I was like, oh, I know who this is and who that is. Mm -hmm. And at the World Horror Con in Atlanta, this guy comes up to my table and I was selling art. And he's like, oh, I love this graveyard print you did. And I'd love to buy it. And I said, oh, awesome. And he said, yeah, I'll, I'll just give you a copy of my book and I'll sign it. And I said, okay, great. And it was Bird Box. Uh. <laughs> and that's how I met Josh Mallerman. And we became <laughs> Facebook friends. And I, we've been talking over the years. And uh, he just put out a serial novel or like novella, I guess, on online called Carpenter's Farm. And it's so good. You should totally check it out. Oh, but going to. he came to me and asked me to do fan art for it. And I did. And it was so much fun. He's like oh. the nicest guy, but he just messed me up. Like <laughs> I told him so. I'm like, you messed me up, Josh. He's like, the, oh, good. <laughs> that's the thing about horror. It seems like, I mean, everybody I've met, you know, it, I haven't met as many authors. I, I actually... um did meet Chris Golden way back in the day when I was living in Newburyport. He came to our public library to talk just about writing. Ever since then, I've always been a huge fan of Chris Golden's. We actually were trying to see if he could help something for Salem Horror Fest. But of course, with his big October event at the Haverhill Public Library, it just never quite gelled. But my point being, like, everybody I've met in horror who really messes me up have been the nicest, sweetest people outside of that. Like, take them anywhere and, you know, nobody would know what was inside them. <laughs> oh, my gosh. I So Chris is a funny story for me. All of my horror writer friends know this, but Chris was my favorite author before I met him. Like I loved Neil Gaiman and I loved Chris Golden and I found him because I was such a big Guillermo del Toro fan, Magna Magnolia fan. And I was like, what is, what else is out there? I want to see. And I found uh, Joe Golem, the cult detective. Mm. And I read and devoured the book. I, I cried at the end of that book and I've only cried at like five novels ev ever. Like one of them being Watership Down and the other being Watchmen. Oh, so I was like, down. Yeah. <laughs> oh gosh, that ending messed me up. Um, but I don't really cry at novels. And that one was like, oh my gosh, I loved it. And so I started looking up his work online. I started reading him like, I love his stuff. And I found out because of the HWA and I was like the track director and the young adult editor, mm -hmm. they wanted me to go to Dragon Con and do a signing. And I did a signing with Delilah Dawson, who mm -hmm. writes for Star Wars, uh, Jonathan Mabry. And Chris Golden. And I was like, oh my gosh, I'm going to meet him. I'm going to freak out. Oh <laughs> no. And luckily, before I met Chris, Neil Gaiman had broke me. Oh. So Neil Gaiman broke me of ever being nervous around celebrity ever again. 
Mm-hmm. Um, and so when I met Chris, I was like, oh, hey, how's it going? How's your day? And I wasn't like, he knew I was the girl who had emailed him like, Chris Golden, how do you write so well? Like, <laughs> how do you do such a good job? I, I literally wrote him that email once. I, I just like the stupidest fan email because I was, I used to be so nervous. Um, and we just hung out and became friends. Like, and we kept meeting over the years at conventions. I was really good friends with um, his best friend, Jim Moore, James A. Moore mm-hmm. and Charles Rutledge. And so we kept meeting and really hit it off. And now we're like best friends. So it's, it's still really wonderful to get to meet your heroes and they're not terrible. Do you know what I mean? Like, it's really nice to find out that he's a really nice guy and he'll do anything to help you out. And uh, the Merrimack Valley Book Festival is tremendous because it helps the library, it helps all these authors. It gets books in the hands of readers. There's just, he's done a lot over the years to help out everybody um it's nice to know somebody like that that really and i hope that i can be that sort of person for the next generation coming in that's definitely one of my goals is to lift other horror writers up exactly uh i think the horror community out of all of the kind of fandoms i belong to is easily the friendliest most welcoming one which again most people wouldn't kind of think that but it really is um Overall, you know, just through Salem Horror Fest and being in the field that I worked in, they were always the nicest, sweetest people. And everybody from top to bottom has been more than willing to lift up other people up, like you said, and build that community. And that's my favorite part. It really feels kind of like a family. And, you know, you meet one person, they introduce you to another, and that's why things like Salem Horror Fest or, or Nikon or anything like that just keeps growing and building because everybody just really wants the best for everybody else, which you don't find that a lot of times out there in the world. But it, it that's kind of the point of me doing this podcast is to show people, even though most people who are going to listen to it already know that these are really great people and they all have great stories to tell and we're all part of this together let's get together and just keep creating great stuff or enjoying each other's stuff so hopefully that comes through absolutely it does i love meeting horror film fans and i really i was really excited to go to like salem uh horror fest because i had never been i'd never heard of it i'm brand new so i didn't know what's around here apart from like the horror writers. And I love finding new movies to watch because that's the primary horror medium that I uh, go after. I just Mm. devour movies. And I've been having a harder time reading books only because I've been recovering from heart failure for the past Mm. two years and I've had to relearn how to read, which has been difficult. Um, So I've been primarily just like movies and audiobooks because I can hear and understand the movie. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it's harder for me to read now, which made editing and writing Jennifer Strange very challenging. <laughs> I can imagine. <laughs> oh, absolutely. I'm going through my copy edit like, oh, man, yes. <laughs> <laughs> I well, see the errors now. <laughs> you're on the mend, though, right? And good. Oh, absolutely. Yes. So I have been recovering since 2018. and. 
I had my heart went down to 10% and now it's at 45. So I'm doing like a miraculous recovery. Like wow. they're like, wow, you know, it's because I did everything they recommended. I worked out, I stopped eating salt, like just did what they recommended and kept at it and started to heal. So that was really good. Good. Medicine's great. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, um, just to touch upon it again, the, I, I need to see Color Out of Space. I went in theaters to mm -hmm. like where it was playing in Cambridge. I think it only played in maybe two locations. I think so. And it is a very visually pretty film. I'm going to be as vague as possible to not spoil. Of course, yeah. But, you know, the trailer shows it as this purple extravagance and that really is the whole movie it's one of the prettiest horror movies mm -hmm. i've been really enjoying this wave of pretty horror films do you know what i mean but they're yeah. still doing practical effects yes like i really love the thing i love john carpenter so i i love things like that and i i read the short story i hadn't read it before i, I watched the movie but i, I listen to it on audiobook very quickly because it's everywhere you can find oh, yeah, it on YouTube yeah. and listen to it. So I'm like, yeah. I'm going to read it first and then go see it. And it was a really close translation. Oh, good. Like, and it was a lot of fun. Like, I love Nick Cage. I love Nick Cage. I love, oh, yeah. I, I'm a B-movie person. I love Nick Cage. So I was going, okay, where in the Nick Cage range is this going to sit? <laughs> and it was somewhere between vampire's kiss and wicker man oh man both of which i love yeah yeah, yeah they're yeah. hilarious <laughs> i think wicker man's a comedy that's you know so he was going like full nick cage in it and he was having fun and he was having a good time and you could tell and mm. that came through and it was a really nice thing to see so i've been recommending you know people go see it but there is a scene that really messed with me and even Paul Tremblay, the author of Headful of Ghosts, was like, that movie messed with me, man. I'm like, yeah, me too. <laughs> Just going to warn you. There's a scene that will push on a button where you're like, oh, no, you're not supposed to go there. Mm -hmm. You know? Uh, I, got, I know. I, I'm, as I said, I'm lax in my movie watching. So there, there's got to be a lot of catch up. And I don't know what my excuse is seeing as we're like three months into this now, but <laughs> I think I'm finally getting you know, my feet under me. And yeah. I think it's completely fine to have something like a pandemic you weren't expecting just sideswipe you and you don't know what to do because I was saying they're going, man, if I don't see all of Outlander by the time we get out of this <laughs> pandemic, I'm going to be disappointed in myself because I, I do have a range of interests. I love historical um, fiction, historical romance too. Mm -hmm. And I was going, no, wait, that's the wrong, that's the wrong thing because nobody expected this. And probably the thing you're going to want to do is go watch your comfort movies. And that's okay. Yeah. I've been obsessed about shark movies. <laughs> they bring me so much comfort. I just, I love them. Uh -huh. I've been watching the Meg like, okay, things are all better now. You know? <laughs> so I think that's okay to go all right, you know, I'm going to save that expectation of myself when things are normal because mm -hmm. it's such a weird thing that we're living in, especially as parents, being stuck with the kids and they don't know what to do and they know something's wrong and they can't process it. We've right. been going through about six weeks of just adjusting the children and ourselves of like, what is the new normal? What does that look like? And it keeps changing. 
-hmm. And so I find myself going back to like, okay, you know what? I love 47 meters down. I want to go see the second one. I heard everybody say the second one's better. And they were right. They were right. The second one is better. I loved it. Cave sharks, what? Yes. <laughs> I definitely, uh, yeah, I, I spent a good amount of time going through uh, the Venture Brothers, actually. I rewatched the entire series because that for me is comfort. Like that show, it, it hits all my buttons and it, it has everything I could want in a cartoon. So all seven seasons, Hulu, just couple of night after everybody goes to bed. And yeah, now that I'm through that, I think, I think I can open myself up more to movies though. Of course, like I said, I started Supernatural last night, so I'll probably watch one or two of those before I go to bed tonight. Oh yeah, absolutely. I think that I'm going to go, I've been, like I said, shark obsessed. So I've been playing this game called Man Eater. I heard about that. Ah! <laughs> ah, it's like, I've always wanted a shark game like this. Yep. I, I've always wanted, you know, okay, we're a shark. Good, bad shark. You got to eat all the fish. You got to eat all the people on the beach. Mm -hmm. But then they put drama in it and it becomes like a reality TV show uh, where you are again, pitted against the reality TV stars. They're all shark hunters. Uh -huh. And you're mad because your mom was killed. You were <laughs> scarred and you're going to get the TV show host. You're going to get him. It's all about revenge. And it, they call it Baby Shark the Game yep. because you start out as a baby shark. But it got terrifying. Like, I thought I'm afraid of sharks and I cope with my fear by, like, just doing all the shark media. Mm -hmm. And then there were alligators. You had to fight alligators. And it was like, crawl the game. Because <laughs> the alligators, when they bite you, they roll. And they're uh. bigger than you because you're a baby shark. And I was like, this is terrifying. <laughs> I've had so much fun with that silly game. Like, oh. we need some silly. We need some... You know, cheesy B movie games and movies. Oh no, absolutely. Food, you know. Yeah, that's what this has been all about. I think that's what everybody's doing. Which again, Supernatural, Buffy. I think I went through Angel last year again, but I'm I'm considering it. Actually, the one I'm trying to hold off on because I think I've watched it too much in the past two years alone is revisiting Hannibal uh, for like the fifth time. That's my favorite TV show, probably ever. Yeah. I love Hannibal. It's gorgeous. Mm -hmm. It's gorgeous. It's so pretty. Oh, it's, it's so everything pretty. about it. And I mean, fully admit, I have a huge crush on Mads Mikkelsen. <laughs> oh, my God. After seeing Hannibal, who doesn't? Yeah. Right? Like my husband and I are like, yeah. Uh-huh. Yeah. <laughs> it's all about Mads. Oh, my God. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. And I mean, I liked him from a number of things before that, like Valhalla Rising. But this is just... Oh. <laughs> yeah I think the first thing I saw him in was James Bond like my family's a yeah. big James Bond family like mm -hmm. I wasn't allowed to leave the house so I saw every James Bond film oh wow and so I remember him from like the weeping mm -hmm. you know the, his tell is the weeping and I was like telling my dad about like dad Hannibal's a great show he's like oh you mean that villain from Bond I'm like <laughs> yeah he's hot in this show I don't know what happened <laughs> <laughs> And then he was in Star Wars. He was amazing in Star Wars. Yeah. Like, I love Mads. 
Oh, I'll watch oh, them in man. anything. Yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. I went hunting Mads movies after that. Like, mm. I miss him. This show's over. Brian Fuller's gone. Oh, Dad. Brian Fuller, let that man finish a series, please. Just one. Just give him one series to complete. Just leave him alone and yeah. let him do his work. <laughs> like, American Gods, I loved it. I was like, oh, this is fueling my loss Hannibal. Mm-hmm. And then they took that away too. I was like, no, I haven't even done the second season because I'm like, Brian's not doing it. That's the thing. And I heard it does suffer for that. I was a big fan of pushing daisies. My roommate actually in New York introduced me to Wonderfalls, which I had never seen. And I was just like, why? Like, this guy is great. Just let him do whatever he wants. Give him all the money, please. But so be it. <laughs> That's how I feel about Brian Fuller, Guillermo del Toro. Like, just let him, just let them do what they're doing, please. Mm -hmm. Just let them finish. (laughs) (laughs) And and I mean, speaking of Guillermo del Toro, that kind of brings up something that's always in the back of my mind. And we've kind of hinted at it here and there. But just in terms of, you know, everybody kind of being scared of the H word. And, you know, now they're throwing around elevated horror, which... As a term, I'm, I find that problematic. It's it's either horror or it's not. But uh, why is horror a dirty word? Why can't people just enjoy that? And I think like Guillermo del Toro is bringing that in. You know, Jordan Peele is really making horror uh, out there. And in terms of novels, like Paul Tremblay, his stuff is just knocking it out of the park. And it's also like, Not that they're watering it down in any way, but they're not letting the horror label pigeonhole them into this is horror and that's all it can be. It's much broader, wider. It's much more rich than most people realize. And I think a lot of the creators these days want to show that and want to bring that out. And that's what my favorite authors, filmmakers, anybody in the field are doing. And I'm just happy we're hear where we are now to enjoy that and see that. And I hope it keeps kind of growing from there. I hope so too, because I get that a lot in young adult, like, like, oh, you do horror. Oh, I can't do that. And I tried to make Jennifer Strange accessible to people who might not like horror. Um, I studied a lot of contemporary hmm. to write the book because I wanted to get like a teen voice where it sounded authentically teen and I knew the best way to do that would be to just like I'm going to read something where there's no magic and there's no monsters and I want to see what we're just going to have a conversation so I read um like a bunch of different contemporary and usually funny I like funny Mm -hmm. um like romance rom-com books and just to see okay what is this like and that helped a lot so I'm hoping that this book will serve as a way to like get into stuff that is a little more monstery, a little more gory, but I still like, I do go in there, but I hold back. I've had a lot of horror fans tell me, Oh, it's not much. There really isn't, you know, that bad. I'm like, well, to somebody else, it's a lot. Even like the first death in the book is pretty splattery, but I don't really show the detail on camera. Mm-hmm. Um, and I've had some horror people like, oh, I wish you showed more detail. And I'm like, well, I'm doing it because I'd love more people who are like, I don't know, to check it, to check it out and see there might be something for everybody in it. Like I tell all my friends this, I am not a zombie person. 
I don't, I have a hard time with the movies. Like I have a hard time with the idea of my loved ones coming to eat me. I can't do it. I love ghosts. I love werewolves. I love creature feature. I love like that sort of thing. But zombies, for whatever reason, they spook me. I'm like, I can't do it. It messes uh-huh. with me too much. And so I feel like that's okay. And I, and everybody is, is always saying to me, oh, I cover my eyes in movies. How can I read your book? And I'm like, I'm terrified of horror movies. I go and I put my hands over my eyes and like Chris Golden makes fun of me. Like that's what happens to me in the movies. I'm saying they're like, oh God, I can't, I'm going to die. And he's like, oh my God, you write this stuff. And I'm like, yeah, but I'm scared. I'm in it and I'm scared. And I think that's that part of me that as a little girl, I loved Halloween and I would go trick or treat these houses. And there was always this neighbor that would like hide in the coffin or hide in the bushes and he would jump out and scare me. And I would be like, ah, that was the worst. And I realized, wait, that was also the best. That was my favorite house of the night. And that's what started this whole thing of, you know, I actually like being scared, but it doesn't mean I'm not scared. So I'm always trying to spread the good word that like, you can be scared and have fun, right? Like you go on a roller coaster, it's scary fun. You do Halloween, you go in those mazes. I can't do those physical, like you're there and the monster's chasing you through the horror maze. I couldn't do it. I'd punch somebody or I'd like have a heart attack or I don't know. I just, I can't do it. I can't do the the real in person. But so many people do that. And I'm like, see, we all have our like, I can do this, but I can't do that. And so there is something in horror for you if you give it a chance. What is your favorite spooky thing? And that can be anything to you. Just what to you is spooky? What really gets you going? I think you've mentioned a few things, but if there's any one thing, a book, a movie, a video game, what have you, a cryptid ghost story, we never talked about you and the ghosts. That is something we didn't hit upon. Yes, I could do... (laughs) my ghost story really quick because it's I have two um so I think for me the idea of the urban legend and the unknown and ghosts so I'm a really big fan of it follows and the ritual I like this idea that you know we don't know everything in nature I mean we're unearthing like slugs and things and bacteria that's been long asleep in Antarctica there's things at the bottom of the ocean. We don't know what they are and they wash up on shore. There's so much like about biological horror that I'm interested in. And also like, you know, Pan's Labyrinth for the green man idea of, you know, nature as horror. And so I've been super interested in seeing, I think, what is it? Pagan's Peak. It's like this real indie show. Like I love things like that where there's a small town and there's something in the woods I love that. Or friends go camping and there's nature and God in the woods. Like I'm all about that or annihilation where there's a meteor that hits the ground and warps the world around it. And we don't know what's going on to biology or the biology inside ourselves, but we didn't really know what was going on to begin with. I love that whole idea. And so in, to me, ghosts are in that same umbrella of we think we know, but we don't know, you know, like, we see manifestations, we hear about manifestations, and we're like, that was a person that was living. But now we're starting to find out that there are alternate dimensions. So I'm starting to wonder, what if it's a scientific explanation? We just don't know. 
because I went on a ghost tour with a friend. This was my first encounter. And we were walking around Roswell, Georgia, which is this antebellum home, sort of like blast from the past little town by where I grew up. And it's got all the old like white columns and huge porches, like exactly what you think of like gone with the wind, but much more condensed, not the same amount of land. So we're walking around and we go to Founder Cemetery. And we're looking around the headstones and there's this big tree. And I'm there with my friend, Jen. Jen is taller than me, um, blonde, and uh, she's got a camera. She's like, I'm ready to see a ghost. I'm gonna go look for one, catch some pictures of orbs. And I said, okay, I'm just here for like the historical side. Like, I just like history of that. My family's big into it. Go look around, this place is cool. I like big trees and I look at the tree. I go over there and I, feel this girl come up behind me and I think that's Jen. So I turn and I'm like, hey Jen, um, like, hey Jen, like, welcome back, cause she'd wandered off. And this girl who was shorter than me looks at me in the eye like a foot from my face and then disappears around the tree. And then I heard the tour guide say, tour guide say behind me that Oh, you see where that girl's standing over there by that tree? Sometimes there's a ghost that manifests over there and she walks around the tree in like a white dress and some people see her and some people don't. And I went, ah, and I ran over to the guy and I said, I just saw her. I just saw her. I didn't even have it in my head I was going to see her. I didn't have some preconceived notion like, oh, I'm looking around for the girl with the white dress. It was like, no, she was right there. She had short kind of 1920s cropped hair blue eyes, she looked right at me, she looked like she was in her mid-20s, and then she just disappeared around the tree. Wow. <laughs> and wow. my friend Jen came over from the other side, I was like, what's wrong? And I'm like, I saw one. She was like, ah, <laughs> she's going to kill me. <laughs> that is awesome. I, I think that's the perfect way to end this first ever podcast for Wicked Spooky Podcast. Um, yes, I, absolutely. <laughs> I definitely want to thank you for your time. Um, hopefully we can talk again sometime soon. Or maybe when all of this is over, our families can all get together and actually do something. We, um, we've actually been doing picnics in Salem. But of course, being from Salem and the fact that the parks are a little too crowded, we take Violet with us to the cemetery, which <laughs> is actually a lot of fun to have a picnic in a cemetery. And so, my kids would love that. Yeah, <laughs> that would well, be, they'd be like, wow, we're having a picnic with <laughs> the dead people. Like, they'd love it. We should absolutely do that. And now, Dead Doug's terrible tale. And now for the story of The Lady, Bruce, and Joe. It was a hot afternoon on July 26, 1974, when a teen girl was out walking her friend's dog in the Race Point Dunes of Provincetown, Massachusetts. Suddenly, the dog seemed to catch the scent of something and led the girl to a grisly discovery, the decomposing body of a woman just off the road. Nearby were two sets of footprints and a set of tire tracks yards away. The naked body had been lying there for anywhere from 10 days to 3 weeks before discovery as there was significant insect activity. She was found face down on a green beach towel, 
Under her head were a folded pair of Wrangler jeans and a blue bandana. The woman was five foot six and weighed around 145 pounds with an athletic build. She also had what was called New York style dental work, crowns worth five to ten thousand dollars. Sources stated that her age could have been anywhere from early 20s to mid-40s. She had long auburn or red hair held in a ponytail with a gold-flecked elastic band. Her toenails were painted pink. Since there was no sign of struggle, police speculated that she might have known her killer. She was found on one half of the towel and may have had company before her death, possibly her murderer. Although the beach blanket and sand had not been disturbed, so she may also have been brought to that spot after her demise. Her body had a shocking amount of injuries. A blow to the skull that caved in half her head was the cause of death. Both hands and one forearm were missing, and she had several teeth knocked out, maybe to help hide her identity. Strangest of all, piles of pine needles had been set in the sand in place of her hands. Authorities wasted no time and started searching through thousands of missing persons cases. As many as 30 detectives searched the area for more clues and tracked down vehicles that had driven through during the prior weeks. They even tried to find any dentists that may have worked on the Jane Doe's teeth. Nothing was found. On October 19, 1974, the still unidentified woman was laid to rest in St. Peter's Cemetery in Provincetown. Her simple headstone reading, Unidentified Female Body Found, Race Point Dunes, July 26, 1974. In the time since her death, she has become known as the Lady of the Dunes. Even though her death remains unsolved, there have been many theories, suspects, and rumors. At one time, even famous mobster Whitey Bulger and his gang were considered, as they were known to use similar tactics to cover up the identities of their victims. Local serial killer Tony Costa was a suspect, until it was realized that he had died a month before the body had been found. Another serial killer gave a jailhouse confession. Haddon Clark said he had committed the crime, but didn't tell the police because they had beaten him. His confession is considered suspect due to his paranoid schizophrenia, which can lead to false confessions. The years keep passing, and the case only grows colder, with the possibility of it ever being solved getting smaller. That same summer, Martha's Vineyard was standing in for the fictional island of Amity. A film crew had invaded the bucolic spot to start production on a new seaside thriller. The young director hoped for a hit, but probably never dreamed of how huge this film would turn out to be. In fact, it is widely considered to be the first big summer blockbuster. Jaws would go on to make $100 million at the box office. But in the summer of 1974, Steven Spielberg's mind was most likely occupied with worry about his ballooning budget, missed shooting days, and technical issues with his three mechanical sharks, all nicknamed Bruce. The movie was the first major production to be shot at sea, and the vineyard was chosen for its middle-class look, and most importantly, it's sandy bottom that never dropped below 35 feet for 12 miles from shore. This was conducive to shooting the shark scenes beyond the sight of land. The cinematographer came up with new equipment and methods for filming underwater. 
including a rig to keep the camera stable, regardless of the tide, and a sealed submersible camera box. However, this location came at a price. Sailboats often drifted into frame to catch sight of the filming. Cameras were soaked with seawater. Salt water affected the mechanical sharks as well when their pneumatic tubes would take on water. The neoprene foam that made up their bodies soaked up liquid, causing them to balloon. The ship in the film, the Orca, once began to sink with the actors on board. Everyone was constantly seasick. On average, they only shot four hours on any given 12-hour day. The editor rarely had anything to work with during principal photography. As Spielberg said, we would shoot five scenes on a good day, three on an average day, and none on a bad day. Crew members grew weary of all the production hiccups and started calling the film flaws. On the upside, the delays allowed the script to be reworked and tightened. The unreliable sharks forced Spielberg to go with a less-is-more approach for the movie, which elevated the tension and suspense. In the original script, the shark is seen on a regular basis. In the movie, he is only hinted at. At most, a fin is seen slicing through the water. When it is being hunted, only the yellow barrels are visible as it lurks below the surface. The few times more of the shark is shown is used to great effect during the attack scenes when it explodes out of the water in a frenzy of teeth. Spielberg even asked the art department to limit the use of the color red so it would have more of an impact when blood flowed during the action scenes. The whole shoot was scheduled to take only 55 days, but stretched out for 159 days, wrapping on October 6th, 1974. Spielberg was convinced that his career was over. He didn't even show for the final day of shooting, the exploding shark scene, as he thought the crew were planning on tossing him into the ocean from their anger. This is now a long-standing tradition where he does not show up for the final day of filming on any of his shoots. Jaws was released in 409 theaters on June 20, 1975, to a record $7 million box office. In 10 days, the numbers ballooned to over $21 million. It was the highest grossing film until Star Wars came along in 1977. Interestingly, the film was said to have caused a single case of cinematic neurosis in a 17-year-old female viewer. This is a condition in which viewers exhibit mental health disturbances or a worsening of existing mental health issues. After viewing the film, the symptoms first presented as sleep disturbances and anxiety, but one day later the patient was screaming sharks, sharks, and experiencing convulsions. This case study caused the film to become notable in the medical community alongside The Exorcist for causing stress reactions in its viewers and it was later used in a study by Brian R. Johnson to test how susceptible audiences were to cinematic stress inducers. The movie's cultural impact was widespread and is still felt today. Jaws set the standard for how movie studios handle summer releases for good or ill. It spawned three sequels and numerous imitations. As an aside, one of my favorite knockoffs is the original Piranha in 1978, a Roger Corman production with Joe Dante at the helm. I was also lucky enough to own the Jaws board game when I was a child, snatching junk from the little plastic shark's jaws before they snapped shut. Sadly, I was never able to make it to Universal Studios for the Jaws ride before it was shut down in 2011. I'll wrap up this section with the tale, pun intended, of the last Bruce. Tragically, all of the sharks were tossed and left to rot in a back lot after production wrapped. 
No one could have known what an icon they had on their hands, and by the time the movie was a hit, they were already beyond repair. Luckily, Universal had kept the original mold and quickly made a fiberglass copy and hung it by the tail as a tourist attraction at the studio. And there he stayed for 15 years until people started losing interest in the franchise and old Bruce started showing his age. Our poor shark was then unceremoniously dumped in a junkyard. The owner, Sam Edlin, immediately knew what a treasure he had on his hands and set Bruce up on two metal poles in the middle of some palm trees. The shark would watch over the junkyard for over two decades. In 2016, the yard closed its doors and Bruce was donated to the Academy Museum of Motion Pictures. All the years in the sun had taken their toll on Bruce's fiberglass body, and only one man was capable of restoring him to his former toothsome glory. Greg Nicotero came forward and offered his services to the cause. Horror fans will be very familiar with Greg's work as an FX master, co-founder of the KMB EFX group, and director of The Walking Dead. Years before all his fame, he had posed for a picture with this very shark at Universal Studios. As Nicotero stated, I think I was kind of born to do this. He and his team went right to work, sanding off layers of paint and patching the stress fractures that riddled the body of the fiberglass monster. They taped huge photos of the original mechanized sharks to the walls for reference and even created new teeth using the original molds. The placement of each of the teeth is faithful to the earlier sharks. For six months, they worked tirelessly until they had it as close to perfect as they could before shipping it off to his final resting spot at the museum. Just two years prior to the murder of the Lady of the Dunes in the filming of Jaws, a bouncing baby boy was born in Herman, Maine, just a short trip from Bangor where his mom and dad called home. Given his pedigree, it's no surprise that the child grew up to be a prolific weaver of scary tales. You could almost say, it was in his blood. Joe Hill's first full-length novel, Heart Shaped Box, was published on February 13, 2007. The book shot to number 8 on the bestsellers list and won that year's Bram Stoker Award for Best First Novel. I have no doubt that this made his papa feel pretty proud, even if he had decided to not write under his given name, Joseph Hillstrom King. Joe felt that he needed to make a name for himself, and not ride on the success of his father, the undisputed master of horror, Stephen King. And make a name for himself he did. Joe Hill has gone on to write several novels and books of short fiction. He is the head of the new horror line of comics, Hill House, published under the banner of DC Comics. Several of his novels and comic books have been adapted for television and movies. Joe himself is no stranger to the big screen, having starred in Creepshow in 1982 when he was a young lad. The film was written by Stephen King and directed by another horror legend, George A. Romero. Joe played the part of Billy, the young child in the opening and ending segments, who is punished by his on-screen father, Stan, for reading horror comics. Stan hates that his son devours that horror crap and throws it in the garbage. Unbeknownst to Stan... Billy has ordered a voodoo doll, which was advertised in his comic, and uses it to exact his revenge on dear old dad. In an example of life coming full circle, Joe Hill's short story, By the Silver Water of Lake Champlain, was adapted for the final episode of the first season of the new Creepshow series streaming on the Shudder app. 
The episode is directed by none other than Tom Savini, who handled the effects for the original Creepshow movie, and who Hill jokingly says babysat him on set during production. Joe's tale involves the local New England legend of Champ, the sea serpent that is said to dwell in the waters of the lake. Joe, himself now a father, took his three sons to see the 40th anniversary of Jaws. It had always been one of his favorite movies, having watched it every summer since he was nine. During one crowd scene at approximately 54 minutes and two seconds into the movie, Joe said he saw something that had him half lunging out of my seat, prickling with goose flesh. Just weeks prior, Hill had been reading the book The Skeleton Crew, How Amateur Sleuths Are Solving America's Coldest Cases, which included a section on the Lady of the Dunes, which he remembered hearing about in his youth. It seems his whole family was always fascinated by the case. According to Joe, everyone in my family likes a good bit of weird, unsettling Americana. All of this must have been on his mind as he sat in the theater watching a scene of passengers disembarking from the ferry. He spotted a familiar face in the crowd, though they had never met. A young woman in jeans and a blue bandana. Just as the police report described, her features a close match to many of the composite sketches. She swims at you out of the crowd. You'd hardly notice her if you watched it on a TV, but it's different if all the actors are ten feet high. You see her on that big screen, and she leaps out at you in that one moment. Going on to state, I was seeing the ghost of this murder victim superimposed on this movie. He may have been onto something, as a big Hollywood production was bound to bring in the curious and those hoping to have their face appear on screen from all the nearby towns. The scene, number 130, with the extra in question, was filmed May 25, 1974, two months before and only 100 miles away from where the Lady of the Dunes was found dead. He went on to write about it in his blog and even shared his theory with the Provincetown Police, where one detective told him it was an interesting theory. Other people hearing his idea were not as kind and called it wild speculation and far-fetched. Joe's friend in the FBI backed him up by saying, There might be something in it. Otter ideas have cracked colder cases. Even Hill himself stated that the likelihood of the extra and the lady being one and the same are pretty slim, adding, My thing is writing ghost stories. I can't tell if this is just my imagination doing the thing it always does, or if there's actually something there. Unfortunately, the casting director died in 2009, and no records of the extras were ever recorded. Most of them were just tourists coming to the island, and all that was needed was a sign informing them that they were entering a movie set and their image may be used in the background of a film. With no other traceable information, the clues lead to a dead end. Still, not all hope is lost. Hill sees the good in his theory going viral. There are people alive today who were in that shot in Jaws and know they're in that shot. Two astonishing things happened on Cape Cod in the summer of 1974. One is that Steven Spielberg filmed Jaws, and the other is that someone murdered this woman in the dunes outside Provincetown and got away with it. Anything that stirs people's memories could potentially be productive. He would like to see her DNA submitted to a genealogical database to possibly track down her relatives who could identify her. That would be the most wonderful thing, Hill says. She's someone's daughter. 
and it would matter to the people in law enforcement who have committed years to finding closure in the case. And that's the end of the first episode of Wicked Spooky. Thanks for listening. I'm looking to get these episodes out once a month, so you should be hearing from us very soon. Until then, keep it spooky! This has been a Violet Says Boo production. Say boo. Boo.